entitled the message, The Greatest Gift of All. I, uh, I like the uh, old story about the dad who uh, came to church with his family. And uh, as they were driving home afterwards, he was complaining, well, about just about everything. Music was too loud. Sermon was too long. The announcements were too unclear. The sanctuary was too stuffy. The people were unfriendly. Finally, son from the back seat said, yeah, dad, but you got to admit it wasn't a bad show for a dollar. This Sunday, we come to the final message in this series within a series on the subject of giving. We have been working our way through 2 Corinthians. And in chapters 8 and 9, there is a little series within a series, if I can put it that way, where Paul addresses the subject of offerings, giving, stewardship, those sorts of things. And we come now to the last paragraph to look at it one more time this morning. If you were here for the first message from the opening verses of chapter 8, as I launched into this series within a series on the matter of giving, I expressed my hope and my prayer in that first sermon from chapter 8 that this series on giving, stewardship, offerings, those sorts of things, would be revolutionary. I expressed my hope that this series of messages would revolutionize your attitude toward financial stewardship, towards giving, towards the Sunday offering, towards special ministry projects that perhaps call for additional funds. And I said in that, in that initial message that it is my hope and my prayer that your whole relationship with money and material possessions would be transformed. That it was my hope and it was my prayer that you would be renewed in a gospel-centered, grace-focused, abounding generosity, all of it centered in Christ our Lord. That you would understand increasingly the importance of laying up treasure in heaven and not on earth. That you'd come to personally understand uh, Jesus' words in a greater way when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so as we look at the end of this section, chapters 8 and 9, we come to this last paragraph one more time where Paul in this final paragraph in verses 6 through 15 sets before us, before us various uh, encouragements, uh, incentives, reasons uh, for you and me if we are true believers in Jesus Christ, reasons, incentives, encouragements for us to be regular, joyful, generous givers. Over these last several weeks on this last paragraph, I have highlighted three reasons, three incentives Forgiving. Let me just highlight them very briefly before we conclude the paragraph. The first one was this. Paul says generous giving produces a generous reward. And Paul used, as you may recall, the analogy of a farmer to encourage us to give. 
And here's what he writes in verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. If that is so, that's an encouragement, that's an invitation, that is an incentive for us to be generous, joyful givers. Then we looked at the second one, and this is found in the next verse, in verse 7. God loves a cheerful giver, says the apostle. Here's how verse 7 reads. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And the point that I made is, how does God give to us? God doesn't give reluctantly. You don't have to force his hand open for him to give. He gives before we're even ready to receive it. Our cup overflows. God gives generously. God gives abundantly. Can we say God gives cheerfully? That is how God gives. And so when you and I, if we are believers in Christ, when we give the same way as God gives, when we give with readiness and willingness and cheerfulness, we reflect his character. It brings glory to him, and he delights in that. That's what this says. God delights in one who's a cheerful giver. It brings joy to his heart, if I can put it that way. That's a reason to give. That's an incentive to give. That's an encouragement to give. Then we looked at the third one, verses 8, 9, and 10, that God provides all that you and I need to be generous. So you say, well, I'm going to give. I won't have enough. This passage says God will supply all of your needs that you have for daily life, and out of that abundance, having all things that you need, you are then equipped for all good works, including in this particular context, uh, the offering that Paul is collecting for the poor believers in Jerusalem. So here's verses 8, 9, and 10. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in all good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever." He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God will make it increasingly possible for you to give. That's an incentive. That's an encouragement for us to be generous in our giving. Now, I want this morning to look at the final three reasons, incentives, encouragements, that Paul gives in this passage. And before we look at them, let's read the rest of the text. We've read verses 6 through 10. Let's read the rest of the passage and then break it down just very briefly. Starting in verse 11, here's the text. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, the, the, the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem who were in dire poverty struggling to make ends meet, by their approval of your gifts, you Corinthians and other churches who are giving, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Notice confessing the gospel is something lived out, isn't it? From your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you, 
because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's break down these final words, and I want to highlight three additional reasons, incentives, for us to be generous, joyful givers. Here's number four. Paul makes the point in verses 11 through 13 that generous sacrificial giving brings glory to God and stirs up a spirit of thanksgiving every which way. Uh, you notice I've highlighted in the text, you notice in verse 11, Paul says, you've been enriched to be generous, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. By you giving, there is praise and thanks that is directed toward the Lord's name. Then you notice in verse 12, supplying the needs of the saints, that's great, but also overflows in many thanksgivings to God. And then verse 13, by all of this, those who receive it will glorify God because of this marvelous gift that you've sent. That's an incentive for giving. God is glorified in our genuine giving, and thanksgivings from every direction rise to God. Let's look specifically at verse 13. What Paul is getting at in this paragraph, particularly in verse 13, is the fact that, uh, as I think many of you know, in the early days of the Christian church, those first decades, many Jewish believers, maybe I could say most, but certainly many Jewish believers were reluctant to accept Gentiles. They were reluctant to accept the fact that Gentile converts were really true brothers and sisters in the faith. They wondered about it. They had questions about it. Is their profession really genuine? Should they be fully accepted into the church, into the covenant community? Those were questions in the early church. So the Jews kind of held Gentiles, yes, even those that had come to Christ, at arm's length. There was a barrier to some degree. There was a gap that was there. There was prejudice. There was hesitancy. That was the reality. So, for example, you have the story in Acts chapter 10. You read uh, the story of the conversion of Cornelius and his entire household to Christ. You remember Cornelius was a Gentile. He was a Roman centurion uh, headquartered in Caesarea there on the Mediterranean. And to make a long story short from Acts chapter 10, at the Lord's command... Cornelius invited Peter to come to his house. Peter, there are some things we need to hear. There are some things that you need to say to us. We are ready, we are open to hear whatever God has prompted you to bring. And Peter, being a Jew, was hesitant about going to a Gentile's house. But the Lord made clear to him in no uncertain terms that he was to go, and so Peter went. So he walks into this Gentile home, among folks whom his whole life long he had been brought up to believe were unclean, and you keep at arm's length. And Peter there to the packed house, Cornelius, his family, his servants, undoubtedly some of his friends were there. And Peter preached the gospel. That's the message. And if you read the account, there were many who were converted, 
and they were baptized into Christ. It's a wonderful, powerful, moving account, Acts chapter 10. Well, Acts chapter 11, Peter travels to church headquarters in Jerusalem. And when he arrives at headquarters, there are those there who uh, were very critical of what had happened in Caesarea. You shouldn't have done it. You shouldn't have gone there. Remember, they're Gentiles. Remember, we are Jews. They're not like us. And so Peter responded to their criticism by relating everything that had happened. The powerful moving of the Spirit of God. He explained all of that. The, the conversion, the genuine repentance and faith, and, and what the Holy Spirit did through that endeavor on that day in Cornelius' house. He laid all of that out, and here's what verse 18 says. When they heard these things, the critics, they fell silent. I mean, what else could you say? This was an astounding story of the work of the Spirit of God. And they glorified God saying, and you can almost hear the surprise in their, in their words, they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also. This is amazing. God has granted repentance that leads to life. Is that so? That's glorious if indeed that's the case. Well, so all well and good. Peter explained what happened. They glorified God. The Gentiles, yes, I guess they are one of us, aren't they? But those initial attitudes expressed in Acts 11 didn't disappear. And the attitude of many, as Paul's collecting this offering for those who are in dire poverty in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, as Paul is collecting this offering from Gentile churches and deliberately from Gentile churches, there are a number in the congregation in Jerusalem who were skeptical. They still looked at Gentiles in a negative light. They're still unclean. I mean, you can't shake that. That's how you're brought up to believe. They should be avoided. They should be ostracized, perhaps. Yes, I know they're, they're believing in Christ. I don't know exactly what that means, but are they truly one of us? All those kinds of issues and, and questions. And so there was, even after the conversion of Gentiles, there was a distrust, there was a dislike, there was a misgiving on the part of Jewish believers when it came to Gentile believers. And Paul wanted to see those attitudes changed. And so he wanted to see the barriers between Jew and Gentile broken down. Not just in theory, but in actual experience. And so that's why one of the reasons why he was so passionate about this offering. So as he went around to the Gentile churches and expressed the dire need that existed in Judea and Jerusalem, people who were living in famine, people who had lost their, their businesses because they had come to faith in Christ, people who were in dire straits, didn't know where their next meal was coming from. Paul says, we need to help them. We need to raise funds as much as we can to help these brothers and sisters in Christ. So that was a motivation, but beyond that, he was hoping that this generous offering from Gentile churches in southeastern Europe that as this offering was collected and it was brought to Jerusalem and the Jewish believers there saw the overwhelming generosity, what it would say to these Jewish believers, these Jewish saints, is, you know, these Gentiles, their faith has got to be genuine. I mean, you don't give this kind of gift. 
You aren't this generous if there isn't something real behind it. They have submitted their lives to Jesus Christ. They are living out their profession. They will glorify God because of your submission. They have submitted their lives to Christ and to his will. And all of this is evident by this great offering. And so Paul's hope was not only would needs be alleviated in some very real ways, but that those Jewish believers who receive these gifts from Gentiles, who your whole life you've kind of held at arm's length, that you'll say, you know what, all glory and praise to God. Thanks be to God. Not just because of the cash we've received, which we desperately need, but thanks most of all for what it says about these believers on the continent of Europe. What it says about their heart for us, people whom they've never met. What it says about their faith in Christ. What it says about their desire to follow Christ. Paul was hoping that that would indeed transpire. And as Paul tells us in this text, as he tells the Corinthians, that there is a heart then of thanksgiving to God as the gift is received. And the genuineness of your faith, you Corinthians and others, is made evident. And so beyond the specifics of what Paul is talking about here, when we give of our gifts, if you help a neighbor, it has nothing to do with finances maybe, but, but you willingly help a neighbor, you bring glory to God, and isn't that person thankful? It Doesn't thankfulness arise out of what you've done? And, and so you find this on, on every level. Uh, when I go to the mission field to Kenya, there is a thankfulness on the part of those Kenyans for, for all of you whom they've never met because you allow me to go, you allow me to preach and to teach all the different things, and their hearts are, rise in thanksgiving to God for people here in Botno. They can't even pronounce the name of the town or know where it is. But God is glorified and they're immensely grateful. That's a reason to give. If people are blessed so that thanksgiving rises to God and God is glorified through it all, isn't that an incentive and isn't that a reason to give? And that leads to number five, which uh, sort of overlaps number four. I've touched on some of these, these things just a moment ago. Generous sacrificial giving strengthens the solidarity of the Christian community as a family together in Christ. That's part of, for example, in our church, we have our cup of cold water fund. Sometimes it goes for people outside the church. A lot of times it goes for folks in the church. And when those gifts are received, the solidarity, the bond that it creates, it's like, you know what, I'm glad to be part of the Grace Church family because people there care for me. You don't know, when you give in the cup of cold water fund, you have no idea who it's going to end up going to. But it doesn't matter. Because as those gifts are received, as help is offered, thanksgiving goes to God, and there is an increasing solidarity here in our church. As we minister to one another, that's where we grow closer. That's where the bonds of fellowship, the bonds of family are strengthened. And so that's what Paul is talking about. And so it's kind of in the, verse 14 is sort of in the middle of a sentence, but Paul says, while they long for you and pray for you, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. There is a wonderful response. There is a solidarity, even though they're on two different continents. The church in Jerusalem in the Middle East, continent of Asia. 
uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, the churches in southeastern Europe. So two different continents, people who will never ever meet in this life. But they long for you, they pray for you. There is a bond which is established as giving comes from the heart. So there is a oneness between, among all true Christians. Uh, there are a lot of passages that touch on that. Ephesians chapter 2 is one of them. Uh, verses uh, 11 through 22, where Paul, speaking to Gentiles, reminds them, he starts in verse 12, and he says, remember you Gentiles at one time were separated from Christ. You were separated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant promises. You were outsiders. You weren't part of the circle. You weren't part of the fellowship. There was no heart-to-heart relationship. But then he says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then he says in the 14th verse, Christ has broken down that middle partition, that middle wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. He's broken it down. He's reconciled us, verse 16, both to God in one body by the cross. There is a oneness. And so whatever we can do as a fellowship of believers to make that oneness more tangible, if I can put it that way, to sense the reality of it in greater ways, that's what God is calling us to do. Uh, You have Revelation 7, where you have that vision of John of, of heaven in verses 9 and 10, where he sees people from every tribe, tongue, ethnicity, national group around the throne of God as one, lifting praise to the Lord. That's the reality. When we in, uh, in church confess the Apostles' Creed and we come to the third article of the Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints is what we confess. And those words, the church is a communion, a fellowship of saints, those words mean very little if there's not a practical outworking of what that good theology is, is talking about. And so part of that practical outworking of the communion of saints means ministering to others. It means sharing our resources of our time, talents, energy, finances, whatever it might be. And so you notice verse 14, so the Corinthians and others give, and and there's sort of a chain reaction. As, As you receive the gift, then those who receive it, they long for you, they pray for you, There is a response of prayer, thanksgiving, of heart fellowship. It carries on. It doesn't just end with the gift. Last year, I was um, at the drive-thru at McDonald's, on the McDonald's on South Broadway in Minot. And uh, I had finished up some errands in town. It was about lunchtime. I needed to get back to Botano, so I thought I'd go through the drive-thru and pick up something quick for lunch. And so I got to the window... And the cashier said to me, your meal is free. And I said, what do you mean it's free? She said, well, the car in front of you paid for it. And I didn't say, oh, that's nice. Man, I just saved myself a few bucks. Thanks for the bag. See ya. Go down the road. I was so struck by that. I said to the cashier, I said, I want to pay for the car behind me. And I didn't stop and say, oh, wait, but what if there's like six kids? You know, I I mean, I'm just getting a simple lunch like, you know, two cheeseburgers and a fry and like a, you know, a a regular size Coke. I mean, that's a handful of bucks. What if there's six kids and they all get Happy Meals or whatever it is? I mean, how much am I going to have to pay for that? That never crossed my mind. I just said, whoever's behind me, put their bill on my credit card. 
And so I drove away that day thankful in two ways. Thankful for the person in the, front of, in the car in front of me who paid for my meal. No idea who it was. And thankful that I had the chance to surprise and bless somebody else who had no clue. And encourage the persons behind me in line. That's what giving does, you see. When you give, there is a response of some kind. It stirs up something in the other person. That's an incentive to give. It doesn't just end with the gift. It continues on. And so Paul says, because of your generous gift, guess what's going to happen? Those believers in Jerusalem, what does it say? They will long for you. Their hearts will go out to you. They would love to meet you in person if they could. That'll never happen. You're in two different continents. But if they could meet you in person, they'd love to. They'd love to express their thankfulness to you in person. If possible, they would have loved to establish a personal friendship and relationship with you. That's not going to happen. But you can be sure what will happen, you will be in their hearts and they will lift prayers of thanksgiving to God on your behalf that you might be blessed for the generosity that was shown. I, I mentioned Kenya just a moment ago. Been there five times. And uh, what I have discovered is as I teach these pastors and uh, lay leaders, uh, there, there is a wonderful heart-to-heart -heart bond that is created. So I bring what I have. I've been to graduate school. I can, I can teach. I can expound God's word. I can help them. But it doesn't just end with me in the class there. There is a response. They say to me, um, we're going to pray for you and for your church in Botno. Tell them thanks from the bottom of our hearts that they let you come to minister to us. It's a beautiful thing. There is a bond that's created. Every time that I'm there, that bond is strengthened and renewed. And the outward differences are great. I mean, it's black and white. It's rich and poor. It is English and Swahili, all of those things. But there is a genuine oneness in Christ, which I personally experience every time I'm there. And there's praise to God and there's mutual prayer one for another. This morning again, I prayed for the churches in Kenya, those churches that we fellowship with, those churches that I've had the privilege of training some of their leaders. I remembered them in prayer again this morning. There, there, there's that community that the Holy Spirit creates in a, in a beautiful way. Well, Paul's now ready to conclude. He's got one more sentence. And how does he bring everything he said about giving in chapters 8 and 9 to a conclusion. What Paul says at the very end of this passage is, let us all, he says, give thanks to God for his over-the-top generous gift of Christ our Lord. The one who, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. The one who set aside the glories of heaven, humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross, the one who freely gave his life for our redemption. And as Paul says in Romans 8, the one who with and in Christ, not only salvation or all of that, but God has freely given to us all things. And here's Paul's last point. Whatever other motivation or encouragement or incentive to give there might be, all you need is the last one. Jesus Christ is that great gift which inspires all other gifts. 
Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, his inexpressible gift. What's interesting, that word inexpressible or indescribable, uh, Greek uh, scholars tell us that's the first time that the word Paul uses ever shows up in the Greek language anywhere. Secular, sacred, first time it's ever seen in print anywhere. And most surmise that Paul invented the word. Because as he's thinking about praise be to God for his gift, okay, what modifier do you use? For his wonderful gift? Yeah, it's wonderful. For his overwhelming, I mean, what, what adjective or series of adjectives would you use? How many volumes would you print and still not get it right? And so as Paul thinks about God's gift to us in Jesus Christ, he just says, thanks be to God for that gift which you cannot put into words no matter how hard you try. That's the gift. And if that doesn't stir you to give, that in, nothing else will. This is the bottom line of it all. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And so for one final time in this section, Paul has touched on this earlier, but one final time, he reminds us that true Christian giving, when it comes right down to it, is always inspired by, motivated by, prompted by, stirred up by the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only son over to death for us. The fact that in Christ, that greatest of all gifts, you can't put it into words, you can't describe it with adjectives. That in that greatest of all gifts, we have everything we need for time and eternity in abundance and to overflowing. There is no greater gift in the history of the universe than the gift of God's own Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the greatest. And when that enters your soul, I mean, when that gets hold of you, on the inside. I don't mean that, that you believe it, because we, if you're a believer, you, you believe that, yes, Jesus Christ is God's greatest gift. We would say that. But when it grabs hold of you on the inside, I don't know if you understand what I'm trying to say, but when it lodges there, when Jesus Christ is your highest joy, your greatest hope, your priceless treasure, the very foundation of who you are, your life will overflow in generosity. God will be glorified. Others will be blessed. The Great Commission will advance. Go and make disciples of all nations. All of that will unfold. And one day when you stand before the Savior, you will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And on that day, your joy will indeed be inexpressible. And your reward will be great. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, everything in life comes down to Jesus Christ. That great gift which is beyond description. And so, Lord, I pray that for each one of us, in, in all the areas of our lives, that that gift of your Son would so lay hold of us that it would shape and reshape and color and mark everything we do, who we are on the inside and how it's reflected in specific tangible ways on the outside. Lord, Christian giving is never, you better do it, you ought to, you should, I said so. But it's always the genuine open response of the heart that has been gripped by that greatest gift of all. 
And so, Lord, if there is even one here today who has never experienced what it means to truly be born again, what it means to be saved, what it means to have Christ as personal Lord and Savior, may that person even this day turn from sin, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and place faith and trust in Christ alone as hope and salvation, the Redeemer from sin. And so we thank you, Lord, for your marvelous mercy to us. Amazing grace we sing, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Well, if that's true, then what? And so, Lord, help us to ask the then what question as we contemplate your grace and glory and mercy and love. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.